Well, winter is here, and that caught me by surprise today, and apparently it caught some of the road crews by surprise as well. Shout out, uh, Kiwani County did a great job. Others, uh, well, we won't mention their names, but uh, shout out to them. They, they helped us make the, the trip go a little smoother today, and I don't know why it caught me by surprise this morning. It just did. I'm, I'm coaching basketball right now uh, for fifth graders because my oldest son, wants me to. That's the only reason I would coach fifth grade basketball, and uh, basketball's played in the winter, so it shouldn't have caught me by surprise uh, this morning, but, but it did. Yesterday was our first, our first game, so I'm coaching this team. Uh, fifth grade son, he, a- he asked me to coach, and there are 18 players on the team, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with basketball or not, but five play at a time, uh, which means there are 13 guys of fifth grade at any point in time on the bench not playing. Uh, of, our, of our 18 on the team, half of them have never played before, and of the 18, half of them are ADHD. I am not a medical professional. I'm just diagnosing them. And so that is the, that is the makeup of the team and I have uh, fewer patients the older that I get. So it's really a, a wonderful dynamic. And yesterday were our, our first uh, games. We had to play two games in a three-hour window, and we came out to the first game and just got curb stomped. We uh, put up three points in the first half, and it was just a disaster. And we've, we've practiced, we've, we've been through all the things, but the team just did not play well. And, and so we let that game end, and, and we just got destroyed. And I recognize this is fifth-grade basketball, and none of these players are going to the NBA. And I recognize other people are going to say, well, they're only in fifth grade. You don't know. Trust me. None of these guys are going to the NBA. It doesn't mean they can't be good basketball players. It's just I'm realistic about the level of talent that we're working with um, and everything else. But I also believe if I'm going to spend my time doing something that we should do it to the best of our abilities. I'm not a babysitter. I don't want to waste my time. So I'm going to coach the team. And it gives me an opportunity to talk to them about lessons, not only in sports, but in life. And that's really why I'm doing it, because I have an opportunity to talk to them about things that are beyond just basketball and principles that they can carry with them into the rest of their lives. And that's, that's why I'll do it. And we just got destroyed at the end of the first game. So I, I call the team into the hallway, and, and we go off into a, into a part with the other coaches, and, and I'm addressing the team, and I'm talking to them about how none of us gave it our all, and every single one of us needs to go out there, and, and we need to do better in the second game. And if we lose the game, that's fine. But at the end of the day, we all need to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and say we gave it our all. We did it our, to the best of our ability. We did the best that we could. And if we could say that, then it would be, it would be fine, whatever the results would be. And I gave him this speech, and, and that's true in sports, and it's true in life. And, and as we're turning around the corner, a few of the parents are like, hey, thanks so much, really appreciate that, and, and get up to my wife, and it looks like she's seen a ghost. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, did you throw your water bottle? I said, no, I didn't throw my water bottle. Why? She's like, oh, in the middle of your speech, we heard a clunk, and I thought you threw your water bottle. And I'm like, I'm not going Bobby Knight on these kids. They're, they're in fifth grade. And if you don't know who Bobby Knight was, then Google it. There's some fascinating reading about a, a basketball coach and, and some, of his, some of his antics. But then we got into our second game. And as we got into our second game, we were doing much better. 
and we were staying tight with the other team. We, were, we fell behind, but we were, we were playing with them. And so I decided I'm going to coach these guys, and, and we're going to see what we can do. Now, I've told the players all the time at practice, listen, I'm not mad at you. I'm just loud. I'm a very self-aware person. I recognize I'm, I can be loud. I'm just loud. It doesn't mean that, that I'm mad at you. And you have to understand the setup for yesterday's game. There were two games going on simultaneously, which, which means you have four coaches at any point in one gym yelling out plays and everything else. You have whistles from both sides with the officials, and you have a, a stands full of people watching the action. So it's a pretty loud environment. And so I've got to be louder than that to call out the plays to some of our guys, and even louder than that when they aren't in the right position of where they should be or they're trying to get a rebound. By trying to get a rebound, I mean watching the ball hit the ground before they grab the rebound. And, uh, and so I'm just yelling out things to them, and the team rallied. They played really hard. I was proud of them. We ended up winning the, winning the second game. So I was super proud of them, super proud of how they didn't quit after the debacle that was our first game. And I told them that, and, and everybody, everybody for the most part, left happy. And then I get home, and I see Brooke, and she's like, hey, you know, congratulations. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, uh, what, what do you mean? I'm like, what's wrong? She said, well, you were kind of loud. I'm like, I don't. I don't think it was that bad. Now, you have to understand, Brooks, Brooks' father was a basketball coach, and he, he was old school. He was old school, uh, and, and so she has scars from that, from, from growing up, being coached from her father, and he's a great guy, great basketball coach, but she carries with her some of the scars from, from a, a parent coaching her in the sport she didn't necessarily want to play all the time and so you have to factor in that she carries some of that and, and so I said I think you're exaggerating just a little bit she's like you were so loud everyone could hear you and I said I guarantee not everyone could hear me and then out of nowhere my youngest son interrupts the conversation he goes no dad you are really loud and I'm like I should ground this kid how rude is how rude is this just interjecting himself into a conversation he was not invited into very rude he should be grounded and I said I wasn't that loud he goes I heard you the whole time behind the bleachers in the gym now in a few years we're gonna have to tell him don't go behind the bleachers you know but you know at this point in his life I think we're okay but that he's like I could hear you all the way back there so maybe maybe everybody could hear me maybe everybody could hear me during the game now, sometimes, sometimes in life, whether it's when you're coaching a sporting event or whether it's because you accomplish something, sometimes when you live your life, people are going to notice. People are going to notice. And today, as we continue our look at the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul has found himself in that position. If you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us this morning in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can find in whatever app store you utilize on your device. And once it's installed on your device, there are a number of great features. The feature that we use every single week here at Lakeside is called Events. There you can either enable your locations or write in Lakeside Community Church Algoma. will pop up. You can follow along with us that way. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, we're going to be looking at the last part of Acts chapter 25 and all of Acts chapter 26. So 
you can join us in Acts chapter 25. We're going to get to verse 23 in just a minute. And if you're joining us via the stream, thanks so much for watching. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside. And the verses will be available for you on the screen below. As we continue where we left off last week, as Paul finds himself in yet another trial. Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 23, we read these words. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. And notice, notice what Festus said. King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me. Whole Jewish people, live a life that demands to be noticed. Live a life for God that demands the attention of other people. Not because you're doing the wrong thing, but because of the impact that you're having, because of the choices that you're making, live a life that demands to be noticed. I want to thank Jacob. I want to, I want to thank Randy, Kira, the, the people I get the pleasure of working with every single day here at Lakeside. Jacob last week, as he led us through looking through the introduction to Acts 25, and really most of, most of Acts chapter 25 just did an incredible job. And just want to thank them for allowing me to, to go away for a week on vacation with my family and, and just uh, the, the great team that God has led here. And the, the theme that Jacob talked to you about last week was, was this idea, to live your life in such a way that people cannot point out any major flaws. Live your life in such a way that your haters, they, they'll, they'll still hate you, but they won't have a good reason about it. It's something the Bible calls living above reproach. It's being above reproach. So that when people look at your life, there are no glaring flaws present in your life. Now, none of us are going to be perfect people. None of us are going to be perfect people on this side of eternity, but we can all make choices and decisions that honor God with our lives and the choices that we make. And that's the important thing to do, that we would live our lives in such a way that people can't point out things. He continues, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. He said, he said this, people don't like him. People don't like Paul. But I can't tell you why. There, there's reasons, but there's nothing that he's ultimately done wrong. In our culture, we've elevated likability among virtually everything else. And now people live their entire lives worried about whether or not they're going to be liked by people. Whether or not people are going to, to like the choices and the decisions that they make. And no longer are people making decisions based on the right thing to do. 
But now they're making decisions based on, well, is that, is that going to be widely accepted? Is that going to be liked by other people? Are they then going to see me as likable? And it's been this monumental shift. And the problem for those of us that love and follow Jesus, if we try to live our lives according to, to that metric, we're in danger. And the reason we're in danger is because the world hated Christ. And if we are emulating Christ, then that means the world is going to hate us as well. And if our focus is being liked by everyone, then all of a sudden, we aren't going to make decisions that honor God. We aren't going to make decisions based on the right thing to do. We're going to make decisions trying to gain favor of everyone else. It's a dangerous trap, and it's not something that should be our aim. Now, this doesn't mean that we have a license to just be a jerk to everybody and say, well, I don't really care. When it, you know, we should still be people who, who love others and who do who people, we want to be liked. That's just human nature. We want to be liked. And so we should conduct ourselves that way. But at no point in time should the driving factor be for us that we need to be liked and affirmed by other people. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense to get today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And Paul just says, all right, now I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to give my defense. And we've heard this before. Why? Why have we heard this before? Well, because Paul's been arrested numerous times. Paul's been beaten numerous times. Paul's been tried numerous times. These are all things that he has experienced and done before. He continues, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. And now Paul has the opportunity to give his defense. And what does he do when he gives his defense? He uses this as an opportunity to tell his story. To tell his story. And where he starts is the beginning. He says, my life has been spent in pursuit of God. My life has been spent in pursuit of God. And here are the ways that I started out pursuing God. He says, I, I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I, I grew up in this environment, and I took it to the nth degree. And if there, was a, if there was a law or if there was a regulation, then I followed that law and I followed that regulation, and I made sure that other people followed that law and followed that regulation as well. That's... That's where I was. That's who I was. And he starts talking about where he was in his life and in his story and in his journey early on. He says, this has been my pursuit. And that forces us to pause and ask the question of each of us is, what is our pursuit? What are we pursuing? 
This is something we think about a lot as we grow up of what do we want to do? Where do we want to be? We think through that a lot growing up and then life happens and responsibility and and bills and and stress and everything else. It just piles up. And if we're not careful, the tendency can be we just start living life going day to day to day and we lose sight of what we're really living for, what we're really pursuing after. And the question that all of us have to answer is seeing as we were created by God for more than just the grind, more than just going through life day by day by day, is what are we actively and actually pursuing in our lives? What are we aiming for? What are we striving to accomplish? What are we striving to achieve? What is it that we have sought out to go do, and what are we trying to accomplish? What are we pursuing? And then, In the midst of his story, he asks this question in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Essentially what he's asking is why is your view of God so small? Why is your view of God so small? Why would you think it's incredible that God can raise the dead? And we're like, well, the reason it's incredible that God can raise the dead is because it's supernatural. Because it's miraculous. Because it's impossible. And it's it's precisely those things which are the very essence of God. That God does the miraculous. That God does the supernatural. That God does what we think and what we imagine is impossible. Possible. God accomplishes all of those things. And yet, the question that Paul asks here lets us know that he has an accurate viewpoint of God. Because the question he asks is, why is it incredible to you that God can do this? And the only reason that that would be incredible to you is if your view of God is so limited and so small. And I just got to ask the question and we've all got to really wrestle with this in our lives is are we guilty of that are we guilty of having a small view of God that we that we think it's incredible when God does what he does and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that we should just go through life and we shouldn't be like oh wow God's amazing or incredible or awe-inspiring because he's all of those things. He's all of those things. But when we have a limited view, when we have a small view of God, when God only calls us to accomplish what we can accomplish on our own without his help, then what that tells us is that we have diminished the majesty and the wonder and the incredible nature of God. God is able to do more than we can ever imagine. God is able to work in ways that we can't even fathom. And we all, as people that love and follow Jesus, we yes, we have incredible access to God because, because of the role of Christ in our lives. 
because he serves as a sympathetic high priest for us, because we can call him father, because we can call him friend. We have, we have all these benefits. And yet we must make sure that we recognize just how incredible God is. And when we recognize how incredible God is, that when he does the supernatural and he does the miraculous and he does all of these things, we aren't surprised. But we expect God to work in really big and really powerful ways. And what we just have to ask ourselves is, have we lost sight of how powerful our God is? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And notice what Paul has done here. He goes on continuing to tell his story, and now he interjects what God has done in his life where he has been and what he has done, and he interjects what God has done and God's role in his life. And we talk all the time about people that love, as people that love and follow Jesus. We need to be ready to give an account at all times for the hope that we have. We need to be ready to share with others the hope of Jesus that we have all experienced. And I recognize that, that for some people that, can, that thought can paralyze you. And, and you freeze up and you think, well, I didn't go to seminary. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to actively and effectively do this. And the answer, if we're always going to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, is to start here and start with your story and to share with people the transformation that God has made in your life. To share with them what God has done. That's what we see here. That Paul starts with where he was, his encounter with God, and now we're going to see the next piece of the puzzle. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance." And so Paul has taken us on this journey in his defense of who he was, what God has done, the nature of God, 
and now what he has done as a result. As a result of the transformation that God has worked in his life. And now we end up with God's plan for Paul's life. So when we tell our stories, that's what we should do. We should talk about where we were, the transformation that God has made in our lives, and the difference that we have noticed as a result of that. And I recognize that for many of us, we don't have those miraculous come-to-Jesus moments where we were on our way to go murder a bunch of Christians, and God supernaturally appeared and spoke to us, and we immediately turned our lives around. Or you, you read some of the stories of people that have just horrific pasts, and God radically transforms their lives. And we celebrate those stories, and we're excited about those stories, but we also celebrate the stories about people that grew up in a loving home with parents that, that loved them and provided them and pointed them to Jesus, and they don't really know the, the exact moment they gave their life to Christ, because growing up, they constantly heard about it, and at some point, they made that decision to give their life to Christ and invite him into the, to their lives to forgive them of their sins, and they want to follow after him and but they don't have that exact moment so there isn't that what we would say miraculous transformation element to their story but we still celebrate that story we still celebrate the work that God has done in their lives it's no less impressive because it was it was in the context of a loving home environment than it is when somebody's about to commit suicide or in the throes of addiction and they give their lives to Christ. God transforms all people and all of it is exciting and we celebrate all of those things. But, but if you have that story of just growing up with it and ultimately at some point making the decision to follow after Jesus, you can still point to the difference that God has made in your life. Because he's constantly changing us. He's constantly transforming us. Making us new. And here, we see God's plan for Paul's life. That Paul had his plan, but God had his plan for Paul's life. And now Paul's before a king. Why? Because he followed God's plan for his life. Let's not forget that God's plan for Paul's life has also included him being beaten and imprisoned and placed on trial. God's plan for our lives oftentimes, almost always, includes taking us places we wouldn't necessarily want to go. And doing things we almost always wouldn't necessarily want to do. And when God leads us to those places and to do those things, it doesn't mean that he's mad at us. It doesn't mean that we didn't follow God's journey or his plan or his purpose for our lives. It just means that God's plan is different than our plan. If you're newer to the faith, 
then you might be at this point, maybe a crossroads in your life. And you're like, but I need to know something. How do I know God's plan for my life? How do I know God's plan for my life? I want to follow after God. I want to do what he desires me to do. But how do I know God's plan for my life? And the answer to that question is written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit by Paul in a letter to the church of Rome, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so if you're at the position right now where you're like, but I need to know what God's plan for my life is, that's the guide to figuring it out. First, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To recognize that there are norms, whether it's because it was something you were raised with, whether it's a result of the culture that you're in, in, in. but there are, there are things that we think presuppositions that we have, normatives in our lives. And if we want to know the will of God for our lives, that's the path. To no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed as we, as we transform our minds. And this is why we talk all the time about the importance of being engaged with Scripture, because this is the source of truth. And then, after that, then we will know what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Again, God's plan doesn't always mean easy. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Why did they do that? Because I was proclaiming the hope of Jesus. I was doing what God had called me to do. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So Paul follows God's plan for his life. He's faithful to the message that God would have him proclaim. People see this, and they say, you have lost your mind. Even when we do the right thing it isn't going to make sense to some people and their response is you've lost it you're crazy you're crazy and why wouldn't they think he's crazy who would choose to walk through life proclaiming a message that's going to get you arrested that's going to get you beaten that's going to get you put in front of judge after judge after judge who wants that for their life when they could have seemingly a comfortable, easy life? It makes no sense. Until you recognize that God's plans 
are higher than our plans. And if you look at this from the world's wisdom, it makes no sense to do what Paul has done. But ultimately, there's a better way. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul's hope for others is that they would experience the hope of salvation. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He could have been free, but an opportunity that God had for him required something different of him. Ted and Rachel McKinney work in the medical field. Ted's a doctor in the Milwaukee area, and Rachel's a nurse. They're also medical missionaries and church planners in Nepal. Now, not many people, after they take on all of the work and expense of going through med school, with the years of your life that you've sacrificed to go through that program, and the cost incurred, then decide to throw away a, a life seemingly that you're staring at of, of comfort in establishing a practice to go serve people in Nepal. But God had different plans for Ted and Rachel. And that's what he called them to do. And so they went. And one of the hospitals that they've established in Nepal now employs over 100 staff. And two pastors in the area of churches were introduced to their faith through the work of Rachel and Ted. A few weeks ago, there was an earthquake in the region of Nepal where they minister, and they still, to this day, travel back to Nepal and minister there. A few weeks ago when the earthquake came, it killed over 150 individuals. Hundreds more were injured. And many homes were destroyed. Ted and Rachel, when, when they're not practicing in Milwaukee or serving in Nepal. They also have a home here in Algoma. And when they're here, they attend Lakeside. And every year around this time, we like to do an initiative. Last year, it was to, was to help with victims of human trafficking. In previous years, we've worked with orphans, underprivileged children. We've worked with food banks. But every year, we do an initiative around this time. And this year, 
We want to help meet the physical and tangible needs of the people that Ted and Rachel are already ministering to. They're already there, already positioned to meet their physical needs through the work that they've established and what they've done with the hospitals that they already have in place. We want to help come alongside of them and help people with the other physical needs that they have of fixing their homes, helping as people have lost things as a result of these earthquakes. So our initiative this year is everything that we bring in in the month of December up to $10,000 because that's the total that they've requested to respond to this need. Everything we bring in over our budget this December up to $10,000 is going to go to support the work that they are doing in the park. They're already positioned there and we want to come alongside of them and help respond to this crisis as they are meeting their physical needs and an even greater need, the spiritual need of the people there as they point them to Jesus. And we have a relationship with them. So that's who we're going to be partnering with this December. And I would just encourage you, as you can, in your generosity, to pray about and thinking about doing what you can for us to be part of this tangible response to meet this need. Traditionally, December is a, a, a good month for us. People have been incredibly generous, and we thank you for that. And as you can, we ask you to give so that we can come alongside of them and support their efforts. I don't know what God's going to call you to do. I don't know where God's going to call you to go. But sometimes our lives are going to look different than we imagine or that other people imagine for us. And I promise you, if we will follow God, it doesn't mean it's always going to be pleasant, but it is the most rewarding life could possibly live. God, I pray that we would follow you. I pray that we would tell our story, share the hope that we have as a result of what you've done for us and for your son, Jesus. That we would celebrate the transformation that you've made in our lives, in our hearts. God, that we would be people who strive to please you and how we live. I pray for the person right now, God, at the crossroads who just doesn't know which direction to go. And I pray, God, that they would discover your will for their life. the renewing of their mind. God, I pray for those that you're calling to go somewhere they don't want to go or do something they don't want to do. 
I pray in faith that they would respond. I pray, God, you'd help us remember how incredible you are. Be glorified through our lives, Jesus. We